welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we have a conversation with Isaac Butler about his new book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Yeah, I mean, I found this, it's a very rich and capacious history of both how the method was developed and then kind of how it made its way into America and its its legacies in, in Hollywood and elsewhere. But I just found it really fascinating to, I mean, on the one hand, there's great correctives like, you know, Marlon Brando would not identify as a method actor. Um, and we get into that and kind of thinking about how the method has both had its peak moment and then kind of has since subsided in our culture and getting a sense of why. Yeah, and then also just how much it just changed so much the way we think of acting that really, even if people aren't method actors anymore, most people use the method to some degree or aspects of it. I couldn't believe that character's motivation wasn't something an actor would think about previous to Stanislavski. I was, totally. I was pretty shocked about that. Yeah, and that's kind of his his larger point too, right? About that the method actually teaches us not just about acting, but about what it means to like be human and to kind of represent being human on stage or on screen. There's a lot of political history here as well mm. of, of Russia and the lesser degree of the United States and McCarthyism. It's just, even though I at one point really wanted to be an actor, I can't help it often belittle acting in my mind. Um, but this book reestablishes it to me as, you know, a really important art form and um, something, right, as you say, that teaches us how to be human even. And Isaac is a really wonderful speaker and just so full of history and obviously was himself an actor because he's really a good talker. Absolutely. Let's listen. Let's do it. We're so happy to be speaking with the writer and theater director, Isaac Butler, today. Butler's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and American Theater, among other publications. And he's a longtime contributor to Slate, where he created and hosted the podcast, Lend Me Your Ears, about Shakespeare and politics, and currently hosts Working, a show about the creative process. With Dan Coyce, he's the author of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, named by NPR as one of the best books of 2018. He teaches theater history and performance at the New School in New York City. He joins us to be he joins us to speak about his new book, The Method: How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which was published this month by Bloomsbury. The method traces the dissemination of a style and way of thinking about acting that's so prevalent it's hard to imagine the dramatic arts without it today. Originally envisioned by the great actor and textile heir Konstantin Stanislavsky in Moscow in the late 1800s, the method, originally known as the system, stressed the importance of emotional realism, research, a character's motivation, and the actor's organic experience. Stanislavsky believed actors were meant to be truth tellers, and to this end, he developed empathic and imaginative exercises to enhance authenticity of their performances, such as effective memory and the magic if. When the Moscow Arts Theater, which Stanislavski co-created, toured its productions in Europe and the U.S. in the early 1920s, it inspired a whole new generation of actors and teachers, including Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, who would go on to teach the method to much acclaim and controversy in the United States. Welcome to the show, Isaac. Thank you so much for having me here. 
Thanks so much for joining us. I think probably the easiest way into this very broad and capacious book is to have you talk to us a little bit about who Stanislavski was and kind of why his approach to acting was so revolutionary. And one of the things that, and I hope I pronounce this right, that I also want to talk about is this Russian word that you use, perejivanye. Wow, you got it. Oh, was that right? Okay. Oh my God. Medea will be so happy, our co-host who couldn't join us today. So yes, can you just talk to us a little bit about this revolutionary approach to acting that he came up with? Sure. So... Konstantin Stanislavski was, uh, as the intro said, he was a, a heir to a textile manufacturing fortune. So he's part of the newly ascendant Russian merchant industrial class of the mm-hmm. late 19th century. And uh, he is also an actor, a very successful, popular amateur actor for much of the the you know 1880s somehow he did that and ran theater companies and his family's textile business at the same time which is kind <laughs> of mind-boggling i mean you know all of us have a side hustle but it's weird to have two full-time jobs that are as demanding as running a theater and running a textile business but anyway he becomes increasingly dissatisfied with the status quo of russian theatrical practice and russian acting over the course of the 1890s. So on a number of fronts, but mostly it has to do with that Russian theater, that the the acting norms are kind of anti-realistic, that they're presentational, that they, you know, the most Russian plays had at most nine rehearsals, Mm. that the visions of them weren't unified because the director was a relatively new job, that they were stock sets, that they didn't respect the literature, etc. And so with another guy named Vladimir uh, Nemirovich Donchenko, Stanislav Slavsky founds the Mozart Theater in 1898 to revolutionize really Russian theatrical practice. And for the most part, it works. I mean, they become this incredibly successful theater promulgating a pioneering naturalistic style of acting. And they help make Anton Chekhov a world-famous playwright. He was known as a short story writer and novelist at that point. Actually, he was not a successful playwright. Then a few years after that, he has a big crisis of uh, conscience or something, crisis of faith, I guess you could say, in his own abilities. When Stanislavski does what happens to every actor at some point, which is they'd have a bad show. He just sort of walks through the role, but he doesn't feel what's going on with the character. And actors would be like, I had a bad show. But Mm -hmm. Stanislavski, who was this sort of relentless perfectionist and, and was never satisfied with his own work, To him, this was a profound crisis. And so he wanted to create some way of guaranteeing that you'd never have a bad show, some way of making sure that an actor could give an inspired performance on demand. And that led him to his sort of second revolution, which was trying to figure out what the internal components of acting were, you know, on top of the kind of external mechanism. What is it that happens in moments of great acting on the inside of an actor. And yes, he was chasing this very elusive goal called Perejivanya, which translates into English roughly as experiencing or perhaps re-experiencing. It's the moment when the actor and character really merge. The actor isn't fully becoming the character. He understood that was madness. You know what I mean? Like if, <laughs> if, if you were to fully become Hamlet in the middle of this show, you wouldn't be talking in verse. You'd be crying about 
your dad or whatever. And so, but it's the moment when those consciousnesses kind of merge to form this third party that is the, the, the performance. And that was really what he was after, was actors experiencing the part as opposed to recreating it technically. Can I just ask you, Isaac, is this... Is some of this also influenced by, you know, we're right in that kind of late Victorian period, like heading into the 20th century. Yeah. And these are also a moment where, at least in, in the West, which Russia is also, the, I mean, it has this interesting kind of geopolitical landscape. It's both West and East in some ways. But, it, it you know, we have so much investment in psychoanalysis mm-hmm. as something that's like newly emergent. I mean, is that part of this story that there's maybe more interest in interiority? Certainly there's more interest in interiority, and and I'm happy you mentioned that sort of East-West struggle, because I think Stanislavski is someone who feels that East-West struggle. You know, his family Mm -hmm. would holiday in France. He saw a lot of theater in France. He's trying to, you know, in the early days of the Moscow Art Theater, part of what he's doing is, you know, is, is, is trying to bring Europe and Russia together a bit. And then over the course of his career, he gets more and more interested in Russian literature, Russian history, you know, the system, the which is the technique that he develops becomes intertwined in kind of Russia in a lot of ways. But he never read Freud. So you are correct that it's this moment of increased interest in the interiority of the human being. But for him, that comes from the French psychologist Theodule Ribot. So Ribot is hugely influential on Stanislavski, about as influential as any singular thinker is you know, Rabot is one of like five major, major influences on Stanislavski. And actually, Rabot is where Stanislavski learns about effective memory. And so his idea that the, the brain remembers emotions connected to memories, and so you can trigger those emotions if you can trigger those memories, all of that comes from Rabot. And he okay. would like have Rabot translated into Russian and distribute it to his casts and stuff like that. So interesting. I also really appreciated the connection you make between um, his approach to acting and the political context um, of Russia at the time. You know, oh, well, you're welcome. You write (laughs) that Stanislavski hungered for a kind of truth that the state refused to provide. And also that Maxim Gorky, who worked at the Moscow Arts Theater, believed that the dramatization of a personal truth gave value to the individual whose rights and dignity were constrained by the czar. So maybe just situate us in the time. I mean, I know that it's a very extreme time in, in Russian history and that a lot changes, you know, from the time that Stanislavski starts to the time that he ends, but kind of maybe situate us in the politics of his time. Sure. So Stanislavski is born two years after the liberation of the serfs in Russia, right? And just to make it very clear, because I think some people have some misconceptions about that, that that's essentially the end of chattel slavery in Russia, right? I mean, like the serfs were not, they were just slaves. <laughs> so he he is born into a period of great reform and liberation, or liberalism, excuse me, let me say that again. He is born he is born into a period of great reform and, and and liberalization in the 1860s, but but that ends when the next czar takes over, whose nickname is the Colossus, you know? And things sort of get gradually more and more autocratic from there. And so by the time he is an adult, by the time he's starting the Moscow Art Theater, censorship is extremely strict. You know, the political possibilities are very narrow. 80% of the country is illiterate. 
there just aren't a lot of possibilities for for free expression. And so culturally, and this actually existed even before him, culturally, people the people who were allowed to go to the theater went to the theater in part because the actors could kind of demonstrate what was really going on under the text. You know, there there was a sort of pre-existing idea of subtext in performance that Stanislavski is then taking further and further. But those political winds would continue to really shape his work and his life and the Moscow Art Theater. The 1905, you know, there's the failed revolution of 1905. And Stanislavski goes on tour of Europe as a as to kind of get out of town after that revolution, that, that failed revolution. And that's when he has the crisis that leads to the system. You know, the Moscow Moscow Art Theater weathers two different czars, a failed revolution, the successful October Revolution. It weathers Lenin. It weathers the Russian Civil War. And it survives under Stalin. I mean, he lives through all of that. And he is helping to run the theater through all of that. It's it's remarkable that he survived and died in bed at home, you know what I mean? At, at an old age, given you know his prominence culturally through all of those moments. It, it's kind of shocking, really. And by the time he he dies, his work is is being exalted by Stalin, right? So it, it goes from being kind of expressionistic style, you know, of of people expressing their their individual humanity to becoming kind of like a social realism. Yeah, I mean, he attacked by the social realists at first, and he sort of does this delicate dance that's really sophisticated given that his public persona and reputation was as a naive kind of apolitical childlike you know genius or whatever clearly he was much cleverer than that he takes the system and he rephrases its ideas to be in line with the party line. So a good example is effective memory. You can't talk about effective memory anymore because that's bourgeois psychology. And so he renames it emotion memory and he begins to seek its mechanisms no longer in Ribot, but in Pavlov, so that he can explain the same ideas with a different vocabulary to make it politically successful. And by the end of his life, he has a direct line to Stalin, and the system is being used as like the fundamental basis of Russian theater education. I mean, you know, at the same time, his protege is Meyerhold, and he and Meyerhold were very close. Meyerhold was like a son to him, and he had anointed Meyerhold his successor. And six months after Stanislavski dies, Meyerhold disappears into the gulag and is killed. So, you know, it, it's a very precarious position that, that they were all in during that period. So I'm I'm going to jump us forward just sure. a little bit to kind of talk about, and I, I feel like, I mean, the beauty of this book is that it it tells what is an impossibly large story that traverses <laughs> continents, hemisphere, and centuries, actually. So, you know, so just forgive us for for jumping through some hoops. So we're gonna fast forward Great. to to Lee Strasberg, the actor studio, and Marlon Brando and Elia Kazan. Sure. Because to to me, at least in your narrative, like this is kind of where we get the part that I think is most familiar to contemporary, largely American audiences, right? That's where we go to think about method acting. So can you talk a little bit both about how 
this work made the the move from Russia into you know kind of America in the mid you know kind of vaguely mid twentieth century period, and then kind of how it got popularized specifically by folks like Brando and Kazan. Yeah, so Stanislavski has a protege named Richard Boleslavsky. Richard Boleslavsky learns the system at this kind of breakaway organization that Stanislavski starts called the First Studio. Richard Boleslavsky is an ethnic Pole who believes firmly in Polish liberation. And so when Russia mm. promises Poland independence if Russia wins World War I, he enlists in the Polish Lancers and he fights in World War I. While he's off fighting in the Galician front, uh, the revolution happens and he runs back to Moscow. But now he's really on the wrong side of the political spectrum. He is an officer. He's an ex-off in, in World War I. And he's a white, which is to say he's an anti-communist. And during the... Civil War, things get so hot that actually it's right before the Civil War. Things get that kind of get so hot that he and his wife flee. They eventually wind up in the United States at the same moment that Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater go on tour in the U.S. And so that tour is a huge hit. People are looking for someone to explain how Stanislavski does it to the American people. Richard Boleslavsky's right there. And he and another Moscow Art Theater person named Maria Ospinskaya start, are the, the founding teachers of this thing called the American Laboratory Theater, which teaches Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and Harold Klerman the system, or at least Boleslavsky's version of it. All three of those people wind up uh, part of, well, Klerman and Strasberg are co-founders of the group theater, which is where Aliyah Kazan... John Garfield, Harold Klerman, Stella Adler, Lee mm. Strasberg, Cheryl Crawford, Robert Lewis, Samford Meisner, and a whole uh, Clifford Odets, and a whole lot of other very, very significant people in theater and film come out of the group. The group, after the group falls apart, they sort of scatter to the winds. And eventually, in the late 40s, Aaliyah Kazan with Robert Lewis and Cheryl Crawford co-founds the actor studio which is supposed to be a home for the professional actor to continue to hone their craft in between jobs. It has a very sort of pure mission. They don't produce plays. They're not a school. You have to mm. already be a professional actor. No one gets paid. Everyone contributes money. If you're working as an actor, you're expected to contribute more, etc. Kazan and Lewis have a falling out, and... They need a new acting person to replace him. And so they eventually bring in Strasberg, who they had actually frozen out of the studio because they didn't like him. Uh, but they bring him on to the studio because they need him. And he eventually becomes the artistic director. He eventually becomes synonymous with the actor's studio. And the actor's studio is really where the method becomes famous and where it gets kind of um, incubated in generations of actors is really in that institution. Now, okay. the weird thing is, is that the most famous actor associated with the method during this time period is Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando is associated with the method for two reasons. One, he's a founding member of the actor's studio and membership is for life. And two, he he, he is the most influential American actor of that period, and everyone coming after him is copying him. They're all trying to be like Brando. Everyone wants to be I like see. Brando. And so stylistically, he's the pioneer of this new American naturalism. But he is not a method actor. He would be very firm about that if he were sitting in my chair right now. He'd be like, I'm not a method actor. He, um, <laughs> he, 
he studied with Stella Adler, not Lee Strasberg. And like mm. Stella, he hated Lee Strasberg. He had a very complicated relationship with the actor's studio. And so weirdly, the person we associate the most with the method is technically not a method actor, would be annoyed if you said he was. But at the same time, he's what we think of when we think of it. So Wait, so then tell me, so why do we think of him then that way? We think of him that way because of the style and because of who so he is. So it's the naturalist style it's the, is that kind of, you know, visceral realism is yeah, kind of what he comes to represent. It's definitely that. And it's also because, frankly, you know, my dad would always joke that if you went to Harvard for more than two months, they would claim you as an alum if you were successful, you know? Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I think a similar thing happened with the actor studio. Like Lee Strasberg really liked to claim people or not correct misunderstandings about who ah. his students were. And there was a big misunderstanding because Brando was part of that inaugural class of the studio. But that inaugural class, Strasberg had nothing to do with them. Kazan wouldn't even let him lecture there. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Isaac Butler, author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Lewis R. Gordon on the line with us today. His latest book is called Fear of Black Consciousness, and Lewis is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Lewis, what book are you going to recommend? Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to recommend three. Okay, and let's do it. The first one is a book I think everybody should read. It was by a girl who at 18 wrote this book. And at 19, the book came out. And it's a classic. It's Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Uh, okay. Yes. I was like, now, who is this girl? I'm very jealous. <laughs> this girl okay. invented science fiction. She was an anti-colonialist. And a lot of the themes that I talk about she has been an ongoing inspiration for me. I love that novel. And a lot of people, unfortunately, have seen the movies. They should really read the novel. What it has to say is a lot more than they realize. And the other two books, one is Living While Black by Julianne Kinwani, okay? Kim? And she's a, a Black psychologist in uh, the UK, Afro-Francophone origins. But what she has to say is crucial because she talks about, of course, our well-being. The question of of the kind of resources around health, because a lot of people don't realize that dehumanization makes us unhealthy, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'll stop there. Can I ask you about how you discovered the second book? Sure. I discovered the second book because I also do work in uh, philosophy of psychiatry, psychology, etc. And when I do work on Franz Fanon, I talk about his insight that there's a problem for every therapist, every psychiatrist, every psychologist, every clinical worker, when a person comes in suffering from oppression because the society is telling them there's something wrong with them, when the real reason they're suffering is because they're healthy human beings. There's something wrong with a person who's happy with living with misogyny, racism, homophobia, classism, etc. In other words, it's precisely because they're aware of their humanity, their suffering. And Fanon's counsel was the response is shouldn't be for psychiatry to make you at home in that society. It shouldn't be to drug you up and make you uh, <laughs> say, I'm cool. 
It's for you to learn to be active and go out there because even if you don't change the world, you respect yourself more for trying. And this is an insight that Kwani has in her book. As a practicing therapist, she encounters that quite a bit. And so I just thought her book was very powerful and I'd like to encourage people to read it. And it's connected to Mary Shelley because Mary Shelley, when I talked about narcissism, Victor Frankenstein, interestingly enough, if you translate the name, it means victory over freedom, <laughs> right? But it was a narcissist. He was busy trying to control, to project his own image without taking the responsibility for it, which is what colonialism does. Colonialism wants to create its own image all over the world, but then recoils at what it creates. The novel reveals that the mistake is to leave creation exclusively in the hands of colonizers. We brought up Audre Lorde before, Sister Outsider, which is another book I'd recommend. And Sister Outsider, many people misunderstand her very famous short essay about the master's tool, not tearing down the master's house. The mistake people make is they read it as meaning that you should not use tools like theory, ideas, etc., because they believe those are master's tools. And I have to remind people, masters don't create or build anything. It's the enslaved, the dominated people. Many women in history know that women built so much that men take credit for. The people who build things have tools, and they could use those tools to build better houses. And so I read Audre Lorde as encouraging us to go and build better houses so that the master's house loses its mastery because it becomes irrelevant. But if we make the mistake of thinking it's about burning down houses, then nobody has anywhere in which to live. We need to build livable houses. And that's a clue that Mary Shelley makes at the end of the novel because she talks about the creature engulfing itself in fire because of its failure to understand the creative potential of building something new. And this is something that is not only in Audre Lorde, but it's also there in a variety of other texts. We brought a black feminist text, but there are many others that relate to it. Friends Fanon, Le Dagne de la Terre, there are many texts that connect to this, but these two, I think, are beautiful standpoints. And also, just very frankly, a lot of the young people today are being bombarded with the idea that they have to wait till much later to do things that can make change. But here you have this woman in the 19th century, 18 years old, <laughs> you know what I mean? And look at what she did. And similarly, when we think of the life of someone like Audre Lorde, and right now, even the text I talked about, Living While Black, that is by a very young woman, right? Gillian Kinwani. So I recommend that text as well, Living While Black. Those are wonderful recommendations. Can you give me the titles of those books again and the authors? Sure. The titles are Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. That's the full title. And the other one is by Gillian Right, Kunani, Living While Black, right? And the subtitle is Joy, Beauty, and Connection to Heal Racial Trauma. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. We've been speaking with Lewis R. Gordon. His new book is called Fear of Black Consciousness. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Isaac Butler, author of The Method. Maybe you 
could talk about some of the ways that the method starts to splinter among these different groups and teachers. Um, sure. Because I think to a non-actor, so much of what Stanislavski was espousing just seems to me like, you know, contemporary acting. It's hard to know what the difference is. I mean, just I think most actors these days research their roles. They try to have some emotional connection to their roles. Um, they so I'm think curious about motivation. About the, exactly. I mean, who doesn't think about motivation? Yeah, totally. Maybe some people. But um, yeah, the, the real kind of specific nitpicky things among these teachers in America that surfaced. I'm really curious about that. Right. And it is funny that we all take all of this for granted because in the 40s, they were making fun of actors who were asking, what's my motivation? You know, I mean, so like it's really shows you how successful this revolution was. So the met, the definition of the method kind of changes. It's kind of a living thing. It's one of the reasons why I approach the book sort of as a biography. So the system comes over to the United States and the um, main theater company that is, you know, encouraging this, working with the system is, as I said, the group theater. And there's a lot of disagreements in the group theater about the proper way to work with the system and, and, and what it means and everything like that that causes this kind of big schism in the middle of the 1930s. So in the 1930s, when they say the method, it doesn't have a capital letter M and it just means like the method of the group theater. Right? It's just like what they do in the group theater, the group theater's method, Stanislavski's method, Strasberg's method. Uh, by the 1950s, it has a capital letter and it means very specifically what Lee Strasberg teaches. So the way that I think about it is that Strasberg, Adler, and Meisner both take a kind of chunk of the system and then run with it as far as they can. And so for Strasberg, the chunk that he's taking is the self of the actor and psychology and emotion. And Strasberg definitely read Freud and was very interested in psychoanalysis. And so that gets sort of intertwined. And so, you know, if the actor is both the painter and the paint, Right? They're the artwork and they're also the material. Strasberg wants their palette to be as colorful and complicated as possible. And the way he does that is through a series of exercises and techniques that get you really in touch with the, with the deepest interior of your being. So you can use that as material. He is most famous for his effective memory exercises, the, the triggering of strong emotions by um, linking yourself to memories from your past in which you experience those emotions. Stella Adler his main rival and they despised each other to be very clear. Uh, Stella Adler's technique is about enlarging the soul of the actor to the point where it is sort of worthy of, you know, of meeting the soul of the character. And you do that through the character's behavior, through really intense script analysis by, you know, what does the person want at this point? What are they doing to get what they want? What's in their way? You know, what we think of as like objectives and obstacles, she would call them problems and actions and things like that. Yeah. And through researching the writer, the time they lived in, the time the character is living in, what their fit body would look like, you know, what it was like to be a human being. Meisner, on the other hand, um, is doing a radically different thing that is really based on being as present and alive in the moment with your scene partner as possible and just playing with what's right there and just being alive in that moment with the lines, breathing life into them, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances was his big slogan. So they kind of break those three things apart, but they all share this goal of experiencing. There are different routes to the same place, and many people eventually wound up studying with more than one of them, or studying with Uta Hagen, who had a slightly different approach, or Robert Lewis, who had a slightly different approach. 
one thing that I, to kind of move us a little bit forward again, is to think, you know, at the beginning of the book, and and you get this later on, obviously, in the chronology too, is that, you know, the period that we're talking about is the kind of high point of of the method yeah. in in the U.S. So, you know, today, while there are certain actors, very famous actors who work still in that kind of method, tradition, and approach, such as Daniel Day-Lewis, for example, is one that comes to mind, you note that it's kind of fallen out of favor since the 90s, um, which is also coincidentally, when you kind of encountered it as you were being a a younger actor and then decided, oh, no, this is not for me. Um, I'm just going to be a director. Um, So we'd also love to hear about that transition. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about why it's fallen out of favor? And if you think that that's merely cyclical or if you think it's a more permanent thing? I think it's probably permanent, honestly. And Mm. and there's two reasons for that that have almost nothing to do with the ideas themselves. One is all the great gurus are dead. You know, Ah, this was a... One way that the method and other Stanislavski-derived techniques in America clung to power, held on, consolidated, is because of these really charismatic geniuses who ran these various schools. And they were gurus, and people worshipped them. And some of them were in that, and some of them were not, but it's still a fundamental thing. They kept a hold on it. And then when they die, it's a lot harder for the next generation to do that. That's one thing. The second thing is that, you know, as Kate brought up earlier, so many of the ideas have just percolated out everywhere. You know what I mean? Everyone is thinking about objectives and motivations. Everyone assumes like, yeah, you have to find something in common with your character. It might not be the like intense version of it that Adler or Strasberg or Meisner preached, but like it's sort of become the cornerstone of American acting. So it's sort of everywhere and nowhere Mm. at the same time. And then the third thing that's happened is, you know, we live in an age in which there's no consensus about anything. And I can't imagine that changing anytime soon. So the method mimics other big ideas of the 20th century. It's it, it, If you look at sort of the intellectual history of, of the 20th century, you have these kind of monolithic ideas and then ideas that dissent from them, right? But they they also they still exist in relationship to them. It's still all about whatever that monolith is, right? You either agree with it or you don't. Okay. Capitalism, communism, whatever it is. And then in the, sure. in the 80s, all of those big ideas split apart and they stop working and it it becomes a sort of marketplace of ideas. It's a buffet where you can pick and choose what you believe and that becomes true of acting as well. And so there's lots and lots of different totally valid ways to be a good actor today. I think the upside of that is ever since the 80s, we live in an era of great diversity of acting, which is really wonderful in terms of style Mm. and and approach. I like that we live at a time when Nicolas Cage can be considered a great actor and, you know, a much more naturalistic actor like Francis McDormand or something can be considered a great actor. Like, isn't that wonderful? Um, At the same time... Mm. I think that it's a bit sad to me sometimes that we take that we don't take acting as quite as seriously as we used to or that we don't believe that acting requires this kind of intensity, you know, particularly with the rise of the Marvel movies and and, and stuff like that, you know, that what we think a character is is something that's a bit simpler and less interesting now than what we used to think. And that that's something I worry about. I wonder if part of that is because the method seems to me to have a bit of a dark history sure. as well that in some ways it became a, a like a bit of a cult of personality 
Lee Strasberg, I think, is a very controversial teacher and that many acting teachers started to almost be abusive, that there's that, that there's an element of abuse in the way that some of the method ideas were carried out uh, in terms of, you know, pushing actors as, as hard as they could be pushed, emotionally pushing them so they could, you know, I, I think in the in the way that you um, describe Uspenskaya, that she was so hard on her students because she wanted them to hand, be able to handle everything, you know, that, so the class was kind of this uh, trial by fire and it would make them strong for, for anything that an actor would encounter that, that maybe that uh, element of, of pushing has also, you know, seem to go out of fight favor. I, hopefully. I, I agree with you, Kate. And I think that's for the, for the best. Do you know what I mean? I don't think you have to do that to be able to teach these ideas. And I think that, um, some of that people just inherited from Ospenskaya, you know, because she was the first, he was their model as an acting teacher. And some of that is, you know, the particular personalities and personal problems, I guess you could say of, of some of those teachers. And it should be said there are people who used the method as an excuse to physically or sexually abuse students or emotionally abuse them. That is something that is part of its history, and that's a very shameful part of its history. And a lot of those stories began to really start coming out during this exact same period in the 80s. You know, once its power starts loosening, we see those stories come up through the cracks. Now, there were people physically, emotionally, and sexually abusing acting students in the 19th century, too. It's not all the method's fault. But once you are imbuing a person with the ultimate authority over what is true and what is false, what is real, and what is BS, that can be a way that enables abuse. You know, that's true in, that can be true in therapy. That can be true in all sorts of walks of life. So I completely agree with you. I'm also curious um, how you think the method influenced the actual like literary theatrical production and film, how the style of acting uh, either, you know, determined the dominant material of the time. So, you know, in Stanislavski's time, uh, I guess Chekhov was was not really was also a symbolist was more of a symbolist writer maybe than a completely you know a, a realist. But later uh, in the fifties, for instance, someone like Tennessee Williams, or in the seventies, the kind of uh, Hollywood revolution um, of you know like five easy pieces, the the kind of performance and acting style. Do you think there's a correlation with? like the material itself. Oh, absolutely. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the method. It's also true with Stanislavski. So the system and the method and sort of all the related ideas, their emphasis on subtext, you know, and it's no coincidence, I think, that the method success happens at a time when we're, when American realism is flourishing as a literary movement that focuses very heavily on subtext as well. And so Nessie Williams becomes an ascendant playwright because of you know, the method performances that are going on. He was also very active at the studio and people did scenes from his plays all the time at the studio. Camino Real started as a project at the actor's studio before it went to Broadway. And, you know, you see this idea of the person, you know, the character repressing or suppressing what's really going on with them become sort of embedded all over the place. I'm so happy that you mentioned Five Easy Pieces starring the brilliant method actor Jack Nicholson who studied the method with Martin Landau, and is just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant movie directed by someone who did not give a hoot 
about acting. Bob Raffleson would often speak very derisively about actors in their process. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the Jack Nicholson, if I remember correctly, I read this story that Bob Raffleson told that, you know, Jack Nicholson didn't like crying on camera. So for that amazing confrontation he has with his mute father at the end of the film, Raffleson is, has his back turned to Nicholson so he wouldn't watch it. Uh, at Nicholson's behest, you know, but Nicholson is 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 doing this thing throughout that movie that is really like a textbook method thing of like, there is something wrong with that guy and I don't know what it is. It's a mystery. There's something mysterious going on that is fueling all of this stuff and it gets this kind of release, but that release doesn't actually like solve his problems. At the end of the movie, he's still wandering away on some new adventure. Another wonderful touch about that scene between him and his father in that movie is that Bill Challey, who's playing the dad, was a member of the group theater. And so you really have this history coming full circle uh, in that film. That's a perfect example, as are a lot of the new Hollywood films, which star students of Strasbourg and Meisner and Adler all over the place. And they're often also directed by students of Strasbourg, Adler, or Meisner, which is kind of remarkable. And so I always think of the, the the new Hollywood moment as like the French new wave and the American method. They collide and they have a baby and it's all these really exciting films from that, from the, from the seventies. Since you are a theater director, I'm curious how much you rely on certain method techniques, um, how you direct actors, where you think, you know, the appropriate balance is at this point between doing all that research and, you know, emotional work and, and where, you know, maybe there are other ways that you think are also effective. You know, how do you, how do you approach the method these days? Um, I mostly approach actors through textual analysis and or through talking about, hey, what do you think is going on with the character here? You, you know, whatever, or through physical staging. One of the great challenges that the method poses throughout the 20th century to directors is uh, actors start sort of requiring that directors use that vocabulary, use those exercises, use that way of thinking with them. And so if you have a cast that has some method actors and some non-method actors, or maybe you have a director who's not that sympathetic to the method, like it becomes a big headache for them. The group theater was able to develop the method in part because they were a fixed ensemble company where everyone worked together and trained together as actors. They had a shared vocabulary and a shared approach that they believed in. That's just not true anymore. And it certainly was not, it was really not true by the time I started directing professionally. So I don't, didn't do a lot of exercises with, um, actors. A lot of actors really don't like doing that stuff. They're sort of like, I'm not in grad school anymore, buddy. I know what I'm doing. So, you know, I might talk about like, well, what is what is the dynamic of this scene? Let's talk about this scene. What does this character want? What's going on under the surface? So those kind of script analysis tools are really useful because everyone knows those and you can talk about them. And so when I communicate with actors, it's mostly about that, asking questions, trying to find out what they need so that I can give it to them so that they can give a good performance, what their questions are, things like that. I have almost never done an effective memory exercise or anything like that um, with an actor. That's just not my approach. And I think most directors wouldn't do that unless the actor is themselves trained in that stuff and that's what they want. Um, so ultimately, what do you think we're left with as the as the legacy of the method? I mean, I guess we've, we've established that it's everywhere and that it really is the firmament now of, of American yeah. acting, whether people, you know, claim it or not. But um when you came to the end of the book, what did you feel like 
what was the lasting resonance for you of, of this of this style? There are a number of them. And yes, we've already talked about some of them that have to do with, you know, how we approach a text comes completely from the method. Um, a lot of our ideas as a culture of how drama works and what how character works also come from it. Um, I think where a lot of its legacy is in our taste, you know, uh, what we think good acting is, is absolutely shaped by it. I mean, an example that I've, I, I give these days is, you know, for most of its history, the method was sort of put in opposition with classical British technique. But if you look at a British actor in a film today, they're a lot more similar to an American method actor than they are to a British actor of, say, the 1940s right like they now stylistically are playing in this um field that we created through the method so i think that's another example of it but i also think this this belief that an actor should on some level be feeling their part for real that they should give over something of themselves that they should be vulnerable and present in the moment all of that kind of stuff and language comes directly from the method i really think it has profoundly shaped the work we like and why we like it and also what we think good acting is and thus on some level what we think a human being is, you know, to think about acting and to think about characters to sort of model ideas of what it is to be human. And a lot of those ideas came to public prominence in part because uh, of all the wonderful performances associated with them. Well, it's it's such a fascinating book. And who knew that one man in Russia uh, <laughs> would have such a lasting influence in, in the whole world. Um, so thanks so much, Isaac, for, for speaking with hey, thank us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Isaac Butler. His new book is The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.